Thank you very much, orchestra. What is holiness? The Hebrew word that is translated holy and uh, in the word of God is the word uh, kodesh, which means apartness, holiness, sacredness, separateness, and it speaks of places and of things and of people. Set apartness, separateness. The New Testament word that is translated holy uh, is the Greek word hagios or hagios. Hagios, Dr. Strong says, is an adjective and it means most holy thing, a saint. Now, if you go down further in his definition, uh, he says, reverend, worthy of veneration of things which on account of some connection with God possess a certain distinction and claim to reverence as places sacred to God, which are not to be profaned of persons whose services God employs. For example, apostles set apart for God to be as it were exclusively his service and offerings prepared for God with solemn rite, pure, clean, in a moral sense, pure, seen, sinless, upright, holy. Now, those are what the words mean. And we could strictly speak on the actual definition of the Greek and Hebrew words that are used for holy. But I want to see them in their context and what we can glean from the context in which these words are used. Now, they're used so frequently, we cannot possibly examine every context, but we will look at at least some of those contexts to try to determine what this word means. Let's pray. Father, I praise you and thank you today for your goodness and grace. Thank you, Lord, uh, for this baptism that we had today. And Lord, may your blessing be upon this Ponzi as he has followed you in baptism. Pray that you will bless his life and use him now in Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter three. Whenever I think of, of holiness, my mind also thinks of this, holiness. Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. Exodus chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the, the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Yes, Moses hid his face. Take off your shoes. You ever thought about that? Why was Moses supposed to take off his shoes? What reason would he have? Well, I cover this a little bit in the book on Jewish customs and culture, which Lord willing in the next month maybe uh, should be out in print. But taking off your shoes, why would you take off your shoes? Because the ground was holy. 
And why was the ground holy? Well, it's easier to answer the second question before the first. The ground was holy because God was present there. And where God is present, we're talking about a holy ground. God is present with us this morning. Amen. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's always with us. Why take off your shoes? Why did Moses need to take off your shoes? You got to understand a little bit about Jewish culture. And that's why I mentioned the book. Do you realize that until today, there's what's called Leverite marriage um, amongst Orthodox um, and even many conservative Jews in which if uh, you are a younger brother and your older brother has married a woman who died without having children, uh, then as the younger brother, you are responsible to marry the widow of your older brother now and raise up children in his name. So you would look at that and say, well, was there any way out? Yes, you could refuse. And if you did, they took your shoe off and shamed you. And until today, the, the widow comes and spits in your face and says, so, so should be the, uh, the shame of the one who does not do um, what the law demands. So there is a shame in not doing it. And part of that shame was taking off the shoe. Uh, this custom goes way, way back. It was certainly mentioned in the book of Esther, but it goes back even further than that. And it continues until today. Uh, indeed, in the book of Esther, it was mentioned that this was a long-held custom. Why take off your shoes when you're standing on holy ground? Well, take a look at Daniel chapter 8. And I'm going to go through these quickly because I want to finish the message this morning. Daniel chapter 8, verse 13. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint, which spake, How long shall the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of des desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? When the Bible talks about uh, something being trodden underfoot, it's talking about the shame that is brought on this. And certainly to take off the shoes was to demonstrate that someone not be ashamed to God, that he reverence God, that he not be trotting under God. Now, those of you that are old enough to remember just a few years ago when the U.S. Army went into Baghdad and knocked over the statue of a sad man insane. And with his statue laying on the ground, little kids came up and took off their shoe and hit him in the face of his statue. It was dishonoring him. It was shaming him. Okay. Um, a reporter, when Bush was in Baghdad, took off his shoe and threw it at Bush, an act of shaming. Um, this 
is why Moses was commanded to take off his shoe. In Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 28 to 31, the apostle Paul here mentions this. He that despised, have your shoes on, is despising what you're stepping on. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under foot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite to the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Despising. If Moses had continued standing there in the presence of the Lord with his shoes on, it would have been a sign of his despising God. Now, Moses took his shoes off. So let's talk about holiness. This was holy ground. It was ground that needed to be respected, needed to be honored. It was, the Bible says, holy ground. What does holy mean? In the first place, holiness is the absence of sin. Holiness is not righteousness. Holiness is the absence of sin. Titus chapter 3. Paul wrote in Titus 3, verses 1 to 9, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the holiness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, it's not righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and striving about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. Yes, holiness is not the same as righteousness. We are expected to have both, but holiness is not having any sin. It is being washed of our sins. Holiness, therefore, is purity. It is not innocence. 
I want you to understand this. Holiness is purity, not innocence. Why do we say? Well, before his fall, Adam was not innocent. Adam was holy. He had unconfirmed holiness. He was given the image of God, which is holy. But God is not innocent. Innocent, and Adam is not innocent. Innocent means that you're not accused of something, that you didn't do something that someone is accusing you of. Who can accuse God of anything? The Bible says no one, okay? God, therefore, is not innocent of sin. It's not like somebody says, God, you murdered somebody. Nobody's accusing God. God is holy. He's without sin. Adam was without sin. He was not innocent of sin. No one was accusing him. And after he sinned, he was not innocent either. Even when God sacrificed an animal to cover Adam's sin, Adam was still guilty of sin. Amen? Amen? Adam was guilty of sin, not innocent, but he was declared holy by God. Holiness is one thing. Innocence is another thing. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 says, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He didn't call you to just be forgiven time and again. He called you to be holy. Hebrews 7 Hebrews 7, just a few books beyond 1 Thessalonians. Hebrews 7, verses 26 to 28. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, blameless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law made the son who is consecrated or set apart or holy forevermore. Jesus Christ is the image of holiness. Jesus Christ never sinned. And in holiness, no sin can be tolerated. It's not as though you say, well, of the million or so people that I thought about killing, I only killed one. Okay? Uh, God's got to hold that to some degree, right? No. Kill one person, you're a murderer. Kill a million, you're a murderer. I, I never stole a big amount of money, just a little bit of money. You're a thief. That's not holiness. Sin is the absence of uh, holiness is the absence of sin, and sin causes the absence of holiness. No sin can be tolerated. So in 2 Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.9, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Jesus Christ has called us in holiness. 
Holiness makes moral law possible. Do you realize that? If it were not for the existence of the holiness of God, otherwise we'd say God's a hypocrite. You realize if our God were like the gods of the Romans, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Palestinians, if our God were like that, he'd be more sinful than the people that are worshiping him. Why? The Greeks had a goddess, and so did the Romans, so did the Palestinians, so did the Egyptians, a goddess of having adultery. Okay? Amongst the Romans, she was called Venus. Um, she was more sinful than the people that were worshiping her. Zeus, in Greek mythology, had many love affairs with different goddesses and had children by them and even had love affair with a human being. Uh, now, that's not the God of our Bible, amen? The God of our Bible is holy. These gods were hypocrites. They told men how to live, but they themselves lived terrible lives. Um, the God of our Bible is completely holy. And that's why when he says, thou shalt not commit adultery, he is thoroughly consistent with his command. He doesn't tell us one thing and does another. Moral law is only made possible because mankind is responsible because God is holy. Holiness is an attribute of God. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. I want you to understand holiness. It is the one attribute of God that he can never violate. Let me repeat that. Holiness is the one attribute of God that he can never violate. Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? There's not a one of the gods that's like our God. Who is like the glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? No, there is no God like our God. Ephesians 4, 24. And that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Yes. That new man that God gave, made of you. He was created in righteousness and true holiness. Because God is always holy. You see, the Son of God was able to set aside some of his attributes. For instance, he said, 
that of the hour and the day, even the Son of Man did not know the hour and the day. That's called omniscience. And Jesus Christ was able to set aside his omniscience. He said, only the Father knows. Jesus Christ was able to set aside his omnipotence. He could easily set aside his omnipotence and say, the works that I do, I only do what the Father tells me to do. Okay? He could set aside his omnipresence and be present in a human body. But he could not set aside his holiness. He could not sin. It was impossible. And by the way, we even have a doctrine for that. And it's part of the study on Christology. If you'd like to study that further, pick up the book, The Son of the Father. Okay? Jesus Christ could not set aside his holiness. Because if he could set aside his holiness, then he is not God. God has to be holy. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8 said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery. He didn't think it's something to be clinging on to, to be equal with God. He was equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation. That is, he emptied himself. And took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Yes, what guarantees the holiness of God? That he cannot even for a moment set that aside. Ah. It's what we call the attributes of infinity. Now, when I use the word infinity, many people, at least they used to teach this in school, um, would think of infinity as, you know, one, two, three, four, and finally, you know, when you reached a gazillion and you knew, and you knew not how to go any further, but the formula was infinite in its answer, then you put an eight on its side, okay? Uh, and that's all that usually people think about with infinity. Infinity means that it has no limits. God is unlimited. There are no limits. So some of the attributes of infinity and one of them in particular I'm going to mention right now, but some of the attributes of infinity, omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience, all those which show that he has no boundaries. One of those is called eternality. 
In God's eternity, God has always been. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? God never changes. He is eternally the same. Now, if he's eternally the same, can he be unholy? Can he have been, well, when he was a child? No, he was never a child. He didn't have to be born and grow up. He was always the same. Eternity. In his eternity, God was never a sinner and then decided to be holy. No, he was always holy. Isaiah 57, verse 15, Isaiah 57, 15. The word of God ties together the attribute of eternality and holiness. Isaiah 57, 15, for thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. Notice that, eternity, whose name is holy. He in eternity is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God in eternity has always been holy. It is the one attribute that God can never, ever violate. He could talk about forgetting your sins. And you say, how does that line up with his uh, omniscience that he knows all things? He just forgets to punish it. Okay? But God is always holy. Always holy. Now we've discussed what holiness is and that God is holy. The third thing is that God calls on the believer to be holy as he is holy. First Peter chapter one, first Peter one verses 14 to 16. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. I would say to my dad, dad, I'm going to go do such and such. And he'd say, I know what you're going to do. And this is what you're going to do. And I'd say, no, dad. And he'd say, yes, don't lie to me. And I'd say, how did you know I was lying? He said, because I was once a foolish teenager also. But now I'm grown up. And so I know what foolish teenagers are thinking because I was once a foolish teenager. But God says, 
as obedient children. Do you notice that verse 14? As obedient children, we are children of God. Do you know something? God didn't want children who were in the image of the devil. He wanted children that are in his image. And so though humanly speaking, we can know what a teenager is thinking because it's what we would have been thinking at that age, okay? Nonetheless, with God, that is not so. God wants us to think like he thinks, and he is holy. So he tells us, be ye holy also. The bride of Christ, folks, cannot be less. You cannot marry a dog or a cat or a cow. No. You have to marry another human being if you're going to marry. Because only another human being bears the image that you have. Jesus Christ cannot marry an unholy thing. His bride has to be holy. And so Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 7 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. What did God choose before the foundation of the world? He chose what the bride of Christ would be like. That's why he created Adam in his image to be holy that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. God chose that the bride of Christ would be holy and without blame, without blemish. He didn't choose who would be a member of that body. He didn't choose Mike McCubbins to be saved, but he chose that the bride of Christ of which I became a part the moment I believed the gospel, that that bride of Christ would be holy and without blemish. You see, he repeats that in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, his bride, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. 
God originally chose that to have a bride in eternity, God the Father wanted a bride for his son. But that bride had to be like the son. Couldn't be just a sinful human being. Had to be holy and without blemish. He had to give it eternal life. He had to give that bride all of his attributes. And so he created Adam and Eve. But just a short time later, Adam and Eve fell in sin. And they were no longer holy and without blemish. God had to restore the image or Christ could never have a bride. To restore the image now that they were made in the image of man, the image of Adam. The day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So Christ had to come down and pay that death. Had to take Adam's sin upon himself and your sin and mine as well. And he had to pay all of that. He cried out in agony that this cup might pass from him. But there was no way to save man without having him drink of that cup. God chose that the bride had to be holy as Christ is holy. And so Christ had to die to pay the penalty of of the bride's sin, to take all of that upon himself. And that is where the Bible says, husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. We're willing to die and take the penalty of anything that our wife deserves. Now God calls on us to be holy, to be like him. He calls on us to have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul again addressed that in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and I'm going to begin at verse 1. I beseech you. God actually begins by saying, I'm begging you. I'm not commanding you because the law says so. I'm begging you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God 
which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. You may not be a man of great faith. I'm not. But I'm a man of faith in a great God. He's the one that's great. He calls on us to make a living sacrifice. I want you to notice he begs us to make that living sacrifice. That living sacrifice is known by three things. First of all, it is holy. Amen? Like God, the sacrifice that we make must be holy. Not willing to make a sacrifice? Then forget the other two items. Because your sacrifice must be made and it must be holy. It must be acceptable. You say, well, I don't accept it. It's not your acceptance. It's acceptable unto God. And thirdly, it's your reasonable service. It's only reasonable that you sacrifice knowing how a holy God sacrificed everything to save your soul. Holy, acceptable unto God, reasonable. And then he lists three things about the will of God. I could preach two different sermons just from these verses. The will of God, verse 2, that ye may prove what is that good. There's your first thing about the will of God. It's good. Good for you or good for God? It's good according to God. It was good, the goodwill of God that took Christ to Calvary. If, he said, it be thy will, may this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It is the good will of God. And it is acceptable. Again, the same word. Not whether you accept it or not. It's whether it's acceptable unto God and perfect. It's the perfect will of God. Now I've had people come up to me and say, Pastor, 
you know, I've been married for 30 years, and it's time that I get a new wife. Because this one's getting old. Yeah, so are you, by the way. Um, and uh, so I'm going to get a divorce and I'm going to marry someone else. And I say, anybody that's any good wouldn't have you. Because a few years down the road, there'll be somebody else. They'll say, but this is the will of God. I've prayed about it. This is God's will. Okay. Is it good according to the word of God? Is it acceptable according to the will of God? Is it perfect according to the will of God? Somebody else will say, I just got offered a new work, new job. Thank you, Pastor, for praying. I don't even like to pray for a new job anymore. People will say this to me. So, Pastor, I won't be seeing you anymore because my new job, I have to work Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evening. I don't have any time to come to church anymore. Um, so, thank you for praying. Yeah, thanks a lot. That was good, acceptable, and perfect, right? No, it wasn't any one of those three things. The will of God. You know, you may have your own will. Jesus prayed, if it be possible, may this cup pass from me. But the holiness of God demands that what you do be the will of God. How often are you really praying not for your will, but for God's will to be done? And God's will can be found in the word of God. It's making a sacrifice, which is holy, acceptable, and reasonable. Father, Use now, I pray, your word in each and every one of our hearts and lives. Challenge us today to do your will, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.